This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone, the all-in-one language app. With Rosetta Stone, you'll have everything you need to learn a language and use it in the real world. They offer immersive lessons, writing prompts, and engaging activities to prepare you for real-life conversations. You can pick and choose the lessons that work best for you and create a personalized experience that's both fun and engaging. Get ready for life's adventures with 50% off for I Know Dino listeners at rosettastone.com dino. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have an interview with Carrie Woodruff, who is a sauropod guy. This is a sauropod episode, spoiler alert. <laughs> we also have Dinosaur of the Day, Giraffatitan, a sauropod. And we have a bunch of dinosaur news. But first, we would like to thank some of our Stegosaurus patrons, as always. And this week we would like to thank Chris, Nicholas, Kyle and Betsy, Blaze Campbell, Trent Carbajal, Paralorolophus, and Stefan. Yeah, thank you so much. We really appreciate all of your support and keep sending us messages and dinosaur requests and let us know what you like about the show. We offer a number of rewards for our dinosaur enthusiast patrons, so if you are interested, then check them out at our Patreon page at patreon.com slash inodino. Jumping right into the news, we have a new dinosaur, but it's not really that new, <laughs> kind of like last week. This one's an ornithopod, and it was described by Daniel Madzia and others. The discovery was in the Czech Republic, and this makes it the first Czech-named dinosaur ever. Whoa. Yeah. Check it out. <laughs> The original discovery was actually published back in 2005, and back then the article was titled First Cenomanian Dinosaur from Central Europe, and then in parentheses, Czech Republic. Very accurate. And they assigned it to Iguanodontidae, but they didn't give it a specific species name. So they thought it was close enough to an Iguanodon to get that kind of classification, but then they kind of just went into a description of where they found it and some other details about the bone. But now it has an official name, which is Burianosaurus augustae. And Burianosaurus is... It's not Iguanodon. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> Although they said it was included in Iguanodon today, which is a clade. So it could have been Iguanodon or it could have been something else. Iguanodon. Yes. But Burianosaurus is in honor of Czech paleoartist Zednek Burian, who was alive from 1905 to 1981, and he, quote, greatly influenced the perception of dinosaurs during most of the 20th century, end quote. So I think he's kind of up there with Charles Knight and some of the other paleoartists we talk about from the 20th century. That's cool. Yeah, definitely deserving of a name. And the species name, Augusta I, is in honor of, quote, 
Czech paleontologist and prolific science popularizer Joseph Augusta, end quote. Never heard that term before, science popularizer. Yeah, I thought it was funny that that was actually in the journal article. Yeah. <laughs> and Word tried to autocorrect that because it was like popularizer is not a word. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess they didn't want to call him like an evangelist mm. or a promoter. It's got a nice ring to it. It sounds okay. It's interesting that the first name and the last name are both named after people, but different people. I guess there were just a bunch of Czech people deserving of names, but they didn't have any dinosaurs to work with. So they, they, had, to, yeah, they had to jam it all in. <laughs> so Burianosaurus is from the Cenomanian about 95 million years ago, and they only found the left femur as well as some other indeterminate pieces of bone which is why originally they didn't name a dinosaur because a lot of times when you only find one bone, it's not enough to be diagnostic and really define a new dinosaur because it could just be a femur of something else you found or you might just leave it open for when a more complete dinosaur is found later and you can kind of get a better idea of what a good name might be. <laughs> and on top of that, a lot of times animals that are named after one bone are later kind of thrown away because they decide that it's not diagnostic enough to really stand up to the scrutiny of other skeletons that have too much in common with that bone. So the femur is about 40 centimeters or 16 inches long, which is pretty short for a dinosaur, especially for an herbivorous dinosaur, which tend to be kind of big. And if you think about it, your own femur, that's from your knee to your hip socket, is likely longer than 16 inches. I would say. I think mine's probably longer than that. I don't know about mine. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, it doesn't seem that large for a, a femur. You see some of those sauropod femurs that are six, seven feet long. Well, if only we could have sauropod femurs. <laughs> it's bigger than you, though. <laughs> they did a thin slice on the bone to do some histology, and they found that it was relatively compact bone, which means that it had more or less finished growing and it was probably a young adult. So even though that femur is kind of small, it's probably about as big as it was going to get. The original analysis called it an iguanodontid, which means it was inside ankylopalexia. But the new analysis actually put it outside of ankylopalexia. And this is the first time I had seen ankylopalexia, but it is not related to ankylosauria, unfortunately, although the word is related to it. They both have that root of ankylo, which means stiff. And in this case, the polexia is thumb, so it's stiff thumb. <laughs> and, you know, iguanodontids have those thumb spikes in general, and therefore stiff thumbs. But when they reanalyzed the bone for this paper, they recovered it fairly close to Mutaburosaurus, which is pretty interesting since that's an Australian dinosaur. And we're in the Cretaceous, so this dinosaur was on an island in Europe. So <laughs> it's pretty far away for that sort of relation, although Mutaburosaurus was quite a bit earlier. So we're probably just missing fossils in between the two of them. Like I just hinted at, it lived on the coast of an archipelago, and it looks like it was near a salt marsh, and it was found about 70 kilometers or 40 miles southeast of Prague, and it was very close to a city called Kutnahora, hmm. 
which Sabrina and I went to and checked out a Catholic chapel that's decorated with human bones. Yeah, it was an interesting experience. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> they also have a really old silver mine and some other interesting stuff. It's a cool town, definitely worth checking out. I was surprised to see that pop up. I was like, this name looks familiar. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to check into it. Since Burianosaurus is so small compared to its relatives, they propose that it might be an insular dwarf, which means basically that it was under the pressures of island dwarfism and shrinking due to either a lack of food or other pressures local to that area. And I tried to get a ballpark estimate of how big it is. It's probably about 10 feet or three meters long, as best I can tell. So pretty small, especially compared to something like Mutaburosaurus or some of those other big ornithopods. But now the Czech Republic has a dinosaur. That's cool. Even if it's only one femur. That's something. Yeah. It was enough to make a bunch of paleo art. <laughs> <laughs> Next, a fossilized nest of a new kind of dinosaur egg has been found in China, specifically the Xioning County in Anhui province. The fossils are from the late Cretaceous, and they've been named the Xioning umbrella-shaped eggs after their shape in the rock that they made. The fossils were preserved in Anhui's quote-unquote red beds, which are layers of red-hued sandstone, shale, and limestone. It sounds like a pretty cool find. Yeah. Next, there's a couple of scientists who are arguing that there was not actually a mass extinction at the end of the Triassic, which is often thought of as the third largest of the five largest extinctions on Earth. Hmm. Instead, Lawrence Tanner and his colleague Spencer Lucas said that they think that there's a little more to that story and that, yes, there was an environmental crisis with a lot of upheaval, but it took tens of millions of years, so it would have been a series of extinctions instead of a single mass extinction. So we are recording a little bit early, but they're making their case at the end of October at the annual meeting of the Geological Society of America in Seattle. And if they're right, then we may have to rethink what we know about the early evolution of dinosaurs, because there's that whole idea that that mass extinction event led to the rise of dinosaurs. Well, I think either way, if it's a single mass extinction or if it's several less mass extinctions, <laughs> you've got a large hole in the ecosystem that dinosaurs can evolve to fill. So it probably wouldn't affect them that much. Uh, could be, but Lucas also said that there were large dinosaur-like footprints from before this extinction event or series of extinction events. So could be interesting to explore. Yeah? Yeah, if we hear more about what comes of this debate, we'll keep you posted. According to On the White, the future of Dinosaur Isle is uncertain, which is not great. But uh, First Jurassica, now the Isle of Dinosaurs. Yeah, Dinosaur Isle. So the Isle of White Council is looking for a, a development partner or consortia to take over Dinosaur Isle. And interestingly, the Friends of Dinosaur Isle, which is a group of people who want to keep the Dinosaur Isle Museum around, have offered to take over before, and they've been trying to for the last eight years. But for one reason or another, the council hasn't allowed this to happen. And they haven't responded as to why they haven't allowed this yet. Dinosaur Isle was the first purpose-built dinosaur museum in the UK, and it was built in 2001, and at the time cost 2.7 million pounds. And we'll keep tabs on this story, and hopefully we'll hear more about the future plans soon. 
Next, the New York Times reported on what's going on near Dinosaur National Monument in Utah. So basically, this December, the Bureau of Land Management will auction gas and oil drilling rights on 140 square miles or 94,000 acres of land, some of them which are very close to Dinosaur National Monument. From the visitor center, you'll be able to see drill rigs and pump jacks, though they will make an effort to reduce noise and minimize visibility of the drilling. There's a lot of concern over the dust and night lights, air and water pollution, and threats to endangered species. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of debate on both sides, so it'll be interesting to see what happens there. At least they haven't started drilling on any of those federal lands that are designated as national parks or forests or any of those things yet. Yeah, they mentioned at SVP that that was a concern, right? Yeah. Basically shrinking some of the parks or undoing their park status to mm-hmm. potentially open them up for this kind of thing. That's true. So another story for us to keep tabs on. In more fun news, Brook Green Gardens in South Carolina has a new dinosaur exhibit open now until April 29th, and it's called Dinosaurs! <laughs> and yes, with an exclamation mark, it has life-size dinosaurs of juveniles and adults. Eleven of them are animatronic. They've got ankylosaurus, stegosaurus, triceratops, and there's also a custom-built life-size juvenile hadrosaur that visitors can dissect, which means that you can pull out their bones and organs to learn more about it. That sounds huh. really cool. There's also a dig site that teaches people how paleontologists excavate and lets kids uncover fossils. And there's baby dinosaurs on display. Tickets cost $8 for adults, $4 for kids ages 3 to 12, and it's free for kids under 3. In Scottsdale, Arizona, the Scottsdale Entertainment Complex is opening an interactive indoor dinosaur world on Black Friday, November 24th. There's going to be 50 life-size dinosaurs, Velociraptor, Triceratops, T-Rex, as well as a fossil dig, an obstacle course where you climb over dinosaur eggs and bones, and then you climb the back of a dinosaur head (laughs) as part of it, and nine what they call dinosaur islands with touchscreens that show facts about dinosaurs from different time periods. Tickets for that cost $24.95 for adults, $17.95 for kids ages 3 to 11. It sounds like there's also an exhibit that takes about 90 minutes to walk through, and you can reserve times to attend at PangeaLandOfTheDinosaurs.com. In Rosewood, Queensland, in Australia, City Councilor David Polk, I believe is how you say his name, he's getting a giant dinosaur built for Johnston Park. It's going to be a dinosaur with babies and eggs and an accompanying educational story of some sort, and the goal is to have it built by April or May of next year. It's going to cost $120,000, and the idea is to help teach people about the fossils of Queensland. Although, based on what I read, it wasn't clear yet which dinosaur it will be, but I'm guessing some sort of carnivore, especially with the babies and eggs. Oh, really? I was thinking that meant that it was going to be something like a Myasaurus. Probably some kind of dinosaur that's been found in Queensland, but... Maybe Mutaburosaurus? I don't remember if Mutabura is in Queensland or not. I would guess Australovenator. But I also don't remember if that was Queensland specific. <laughs> kind of brush up on our Australia dinosaurs, yeah. apparently. <laughs> At least we could name a couple. Yeah. <laughs> Next, there's a new game involving dinosaurs out on iOS. It's called Smash Up. It actually started as a tabletop game, and now there's a digital version. And the game involves dinosaurs, ninjas, pirates, robots, and zombies on cards. And you shuffle the cards together and use them to take down your opponents. And Garrett, I think we played the tabletop version we did. years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So now you can play it digitally. I think I got to play as a dinosaur, if I remember correctly. Yeah. It's all very random. 
And last, Earth Touch News posted a great article called The Punny, the Peculiar, and the Unpronounceable, the Best Prehistoric Animal Names. <laughs> hmm. I really like that title. So not all of them are dinosaur names. They include a trilobite named Han Solo and a turtle named Ninjemis, which means the Ninja Turtle. But the dinosaurs named include Bebe Long, which means baby dragon, and refers to baby Louie, a dinosaur embryo. And they also include ornithomimosaurs in general, the bird mimic dinosaurs, which are kind of funny when you think about them, since birds came after dinosaurs. Yep. The Morrison Formation is by far the most famous Jurassic site in the United States, and I would argue in the world. Especially for sauropods. It does have some fantastic sauropods. They are spread across multiple states, and the Morrison Formation covers a good portion of western Colorado, and that's where this week's sponsor, the Colorado Northwestern Community College, or CNCC, comes in. Possibly the most famous sauropod from the Morrison Formation is Brachiosaurus, and the Morrison Formation also includes two other very famous dinosaurs, Allosaurus and Stegosaurus, and CNCC actually has an active dig site right now with all three of those amazing dinosaurs in one site. Nice. And even better, you can join them digging up those bones this summer. They're offering 16-day field programs where you can dig up bones with expert local paleontologists from the college. There's two scheduled digs. The first one's July 6th to July 20th. The second one is July 22nd to August 5th. But they are filling up, so be sure that you sign up now. You can go to cncc.edu slash dinodig to get all the details. Make sure you register online by May 31st, but do it even sooner because, again, those spots are going to be full soon. Again, that's cncc.edu slash dinodig. This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone, world-class language learning for the world's best moms. It's almost Mother's Day after all. We're going to continue our story from last time about our trip to the Taipei Zoo in Taiwan. Yeah, we definitely recommend the Taipei Zoo in Taiwan. They have a really cool dinosaur museum featuring all the highlights like Deinonychus, T-Rex, Triceratops. So we had a really great time. And then we decided to take the train back and we had some more aha moments with our language learning journey. Yeah, we had to read some maps to navigate home. And of course, a lot of the things are translated into English, but not everything is translated. So it helps a lot if you know some of the local language. It's also very nice to be able to understand announcements when you're on public transportation. Yes, because things can change sometimes. And as a bonus, we were on the train at the time when everyone was coming home from work, so I got to practice even more by listening in on conversations. Not that I was trying, but we were elbow to elbow with people, so it was hard not to hear what they were saying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there wasn't anything too juicy, mostly people talking about what they're going to have for dinner. But a lot of the early phrases I learned in Chinese had to do with food, so I felt pretty good about what I could understand. And Rosetta Stone can help you have your own proud moments. Yes, and the lessons are short, so you can fit them into your busy schedule. And for a limited time, you can get all of Rosetta Stone's 25 language courses for just $179, which is a huge discount off of the usual $399. And you can do that at rosettastone.com dino. Again, that's rosettastone.com dino. And now we're going to go on to our interview with Carrie Woodruff. Today, we're joined by Carrie Woodruff, Director of Paleontology at Great Plains Dinosaur Museum in Malta, Montana, and also a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto. And Carrie specializes in sauropods, which is awesome, and recently published a paper about how diplodocids grow. 
So with this most recent research, you examined over 20 individuals and then analyzed how they grew. So what did you look at? Were you looking for anything specific? In a way, no. What we were trying to do was just sample as many specimens as we could and look at basically as many things as we could, looking at features morphologically, so the shape of the bones, and then looking also histologically, so the the microscopic anatomy of the bones themselves, looking at the shape and the inside of all of these different kinds of bones from all over the skeleton, from all these different individuals, from hopefully what we were hoping would be different growth stages. And that way we could just try to get a better understanding of how the animals collectively grew up. Cool. And so I know you looked at mostly Apatosaurus and Diplodocus. How did you decide that those were the ones that you wanted to study? So Apatosaurus and Diplodocus come from, you know, the famous Morrison formation of Western uh, U.S. Mm -hmm. It's one of the most heavily excavated and most heavily studied dinosaur bearing formations in the world. You know, it's been continuously excavated since the late uh, 1880s. And if you go into, at least I can say this, you know, any dinosaur museum in North America, you'll find at least a bone from the Morrison Formation. (laughs) So a lot of material out there. And because the Plotticus and the Patasaurus are so common, you know, I'm really interested in the the group that the Patasaurus and the Plotticus are a part of, so Diplodocoidea and Diplodocidae, you know, fancy family names. Mm-hmm. They were, you know, Diplodocus and Apatosaurus are the two most common Diplodocids, especially just because there's so much material of Apatosaurus and Diplodocus in museums across the country. Yeah. So did you have to go to a lot of museums to go study these fossils? I did, but that was the really fun part. Um, <laughs> he... Many, many, many years ago, um, my master's advisor, Jack Horner, he paid for me to go to almost every museum that had Morrison material, um, basically between Bozeman, Montana and uh, Bonn, Germany. Wow. wow. Which way is that going? Is that going east <laughs> from Bozeman? Yeah. So going, going, uh, going east. Um Admittedly, there were some museums I could not get to hit, um, but, you know, will hopefully hit. But it was great because, you know, this work, this was the Plotisid ontogeny work, um, represented the main portion of my master's thesis. Uh, but it's work that I've been doing since 2011. And, you know, actually many elements of it are still ongoing research. So that's kind of a neat thing that it's a piece of work that I've been able to do for so long. But luckily, you know, in certain respects doesn't really have an end in sight. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) How did you first get into sauropods? You know, everyone asks me that, and I'm not really 100% sure. Um, (laughs) I was, you know, of course, you know, I was like every person who's interested in paleontology, you know, practically, I was just, you know, quote unquote, one of those weird kids. I was always, I was bitten by the dinosaur bug, (laughs) always interested by dinosaurs. Of course, you know, like Jurassic Park was always on, you know, dinosaur books, all that kind of stuff. And Sort of like every, you know, diehard, you know, dinosaur fanboy, I was obsessed with theropods. And then somehow that switched uh, when I got to college. When I was in high school, I actually got to work for the Virginia Museum of Natural History. And they had a Morrison formation dig site in north central Wyoming. So we were digging theropods. So that was my first experience with them. 
but it wasn't some sort of, you know, epiphany with, oh my gosh, there's this even cooler group of dinosaurs out there. Um, <laughs> it, it just, I, I don't know really when it changed, but, you know, I started researching sauropods and, you know, there are a lot of people studying theropods, but compared mm-hmm. to other scientific disciplines, you know, paleontology is a very small pool of people. So we know everyone in our discipline and especially the smaller of a group you start working in, the closer you know everyone even more. So there really aren't that many people working in sauropods, really mm-hmm. in the scheme of things. Mm-hmm. And I just started reading a lot of previous work that had been done on sauropods. I mean, there's still so many questions left to be answered. And I thought a lot of these questions, I mean, weren't just good questions, but questions that really needed to be addressed. Like Diplodocus. We've known about it for over you know, 100 years, since the late 1880s. And we didn't really know anything about how the animal itself grew up. Right. And I just found that fascinating. <laughs> yeah, we just know that it got very large. <laughs> yeah, and we know we knew aspects of its growth. Like we knew how this feature changed or that feature or the bone tissue in a young animal looked like this and the bone tissue in an animal looked like that. But I've related a lot of this to being like a puzzle. We had a lot of individual pieces, but we didn't know what the picture as a whole looked like. Mm-hmm. So what did you discover in your latest examinations? So, of course, with any good analysis, you know, we're left at the end of the day with probably, or hopefully, as more questions as those we actually sought to answer. A lot of my stuff with sauropod work is... Um, controversial to say the least but you know that's that's good science my goal is to you know get people thinking about a topic and a subject and hopefully that spawns more research and you know with every paper that comes out on both viewpoints we're hopefully one step closer to understanding what the the truth of the matter is Mm -hmm. um so i know some people will wouldn't surprise me if they've debated it but some of the neat things we've been able to i'll say learn or have a better idea of understanding is exactly the changes that are going on, and I'm just going to use Diplodocus because that's a sort of the flagship um, dinosaur of the paper, you know, how it was growing up. So we knew, for instance, sauropods are either their eggs, they're incredibly rare. We only have maybe two or three localities in the world where we know sauropod eggs. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, fruit cantaloupe size, right? So we know they came out of an egg the size of a cantaloupe. And we know, again, speaking Diplodocus wise, you know, we're looking at, like a, you know, a really big animal is, you know, just shy of 100 feet long, you know, 89, 90 foot range, you know, give or take. Mm-hmm. But what happened between cantaloupe and 100 feet, right? And <laughs> happened, right? And that's a, that's a great question. Yeah. Because before the dinosaur renaissance and people understanding the relationship with birds, you know, previous paleontologists thought, oh. Reptiles take a really long time to grow. Dinosaurs are just really, really big reptiles. Ergo, it took dinosaurs a really, really long time to grow. So people came up with like, you know, sauropod taking hundreds of years to reach its adult size, which we now know is wrong for many, many reasons. But, you know, looking at the Plotticus, our work has been able to show that, you know, a 20-foot long Diplodocus, so, you know, still what we would consider that's big animal, but that's small by sauropod standards. Mm-hmm. Is you know maybe you know in the two to six year old range, maybe as old as ten, um, but you know it's a young animal. 
Mm-hmm. A 60 foot long animal is in its early teenage years. <laughs> and that adult, you know, Diplodocus, you know, being just, you know, 90 feet long, you know, or give or take close to 100 feet long, you know, the oldest Diplodocus that I was able to find, we estimate was in probably its mid 20s to earliest 30s at the time of its death. Wow. And they're still, even though we have a lot of, we had a lot of specimens we were able to analyze, there were still a lot of size ranges we didn't have and a lot of big gaps in that picture. Mm-hmm. But we, you know, we could basically say cantaloupe to 100 feet long took 30 years. <laughs> That's impressive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's not just the number of years it took these animals to get to be that long. Mm-hmm. What I found to be some of the neatest avenues of the research were understanding how the bones changed throughout growth. Right. So, again, this is albeit some of the more contentious points. (laughs) But previously, again, this is kind of basically pre-dinosaur renaissance to just immediately post-dinosaur renaissance. People thought that dinosaurs were largely, you know, we would consider, you know, isometric. They grew, you know, a baby other than the size. A baby looked just like an adult, right? All it did was it just got bigger throughout its life. But we now know, especially in the past 10, 15 years, a lot of the work um, stemming from the lab of uh, Jack Horner and all of his students and research associates and uh, colleagues that Dinosaurs underwent radical, we would say, radical ontogenetic trajectories. Mm -hmm. So Triceratops is the flagship (laughs) poster child ontogenetic change. You know, they look, each growth stage looks so dramatically different that they will all, these growth stages were interpreted to be different species. And still are for some people, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, some people. (laughs) But admittedly, you know, Sauropods didn't have big horns and frills and crests and things. So they didn't have these display features that were changing. Mm -hmm. But their skeletons were still undergoing radical shape change throughout the growth. Now, again, these changes weren't occurring because, you know, it's not like a display feature, like a crest or a frill or a horn. Mm -hmm. It's the fact going from cantaloupe to 100 feet long. I mean, you can't come out of a cantaloupe and be perfectly designed and just get to be 100 feet long. Right. Right. The forces, the gravity, the physics, everything. Your skeleton has to radically change. And so we would expect to see the greatest change in the shape of the bones in the animals that undergo the greatest size change throughout their life, mm-hmm. especially as it be the biggest. And yet that was kind of an interesting thing is really ontogenetic change in sauropods has really dwindle compared to the amount of research that's been done on ontogenetic change in other groups of dinosaurs. Hmm. So it's been to show that, you know, what elements of the skeleton do change. That's been really cool. So what does change? Oh, there are lots of really cool changes. So we see changes in the femur. So, you know, that's the big bone in the leg. Mm -hmm. So we see only does it get longer, but uh, where the the femur heads, that's where it fits into the hip socket. The orientation of that changes. There's a big, important muscle attachment called the femur, called the fourth trochanter. Mm-hmm. That changes position. So these may seem like, oh, okay, you know, an orientation of this changes, a muscle attachment switches here or there. And that maybe doesn't sound 
like, think about it. You know, you have to move, right? So how your bones are oriented to one another and where muscles, where they attach proportionately, that's really important too. That says a lot about how these things are moving. Right. We've also noticed, for instance, one of the odder findings is there seems to be an extra hole in the head in young diplodocids that closes up when you get older. And, you know, I was telling people about this and I'm like, well, that just sounds absolutely bizarre. <laughs> and stop and think about it. We had an extra opening in our head when we were young, too. I was just thinking, yeah, babies, right? The soft spot. Soft spot. That's a font <laughs> We need to do the histology on it to determine if it forms the same way. And yes, I am proposing to cut up a sauropod skull. And yes, we <gasps> Gasp, are. those are rare. <laughs> uh, for some people, <laughs> we don't have a we didn't have a problem finding them at the Museum of the Rockies. Uh, we have an entire ontogenetic series of Diplodocus skulls. Oh, nice. That's really you can also understand how the skull changes through growth as well. But it does appear that these young diplodocids have this extra hole in their head for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. So we'd like to realize why that's there, how it formed, how it closes, things like that. And albeit the most debated skeletal feature we've, um, we tracked through growth and growth, we call it ontogeny in Apatosaurus and Diplodocus and a bunch of other sauropods in a bunch of their vertebrae, so like the vertebra and the neck, the backs and the first part of the tail. The fancy term for it is we call it a bifurcated neural spine. Mm -hmm. So it's a split. Imagine given the peace sign. <laughs> we would argue that we have evidence to show that in young diplodocids, they are a short, single, unsplit spine, and that this split spine develops as they get bigger and older. Interesting. And we've been able to show how that coincides with the mechanics of these animals getting larger. Mm -hmm. Do you think that helps that support weight or something, or do you not know yet? Yeah, so we have some ideas, and again, these are theories that need, you know, full, proper computer biomechanical modeling. Mm -hmm. But what we suggest, and actually um, I did a paper on this in uh, 2016, was that, you know, as, pardon me, take the neck of a diplodocus, right, is getting longer it's also getting heavier and again boy you want to talk about a debate in sauropod research i could have a whole uh, episode on it just how they held their necks <laughs> yeah the two camps there are the vertical neckers and the horizontal neckers so, you know <laughs> vertical neckers, that's you know jurassic park-esque brachiosaurus you know they use these necks to feed high up in trees you know very you know, vertical swan-like posture mm -hmm. then there's the horizontal neckers, which that was, you know, that whole front is being led by the groundbreaking work um, by Dr. Kent Stevens, showing how the mechanics of the neck in the plotus is actually better for being held out horizontally and feeding sideways. And so we think that these split spines are developing basically as the neck is not just getting longer, it's getting heavier. And it has to move side to side. Mm -hmm. This split in the spines, actually, we've looked at modern animals that have these split spines as well. And the soft tissues associated with it actually have to do to a split ligament in the neck. And so if you think about like, you know, those old drinking birds, you know, you tilt the head down, it just keeps rocking yeah. and backwards. <laughs> so that's, so we relate that the same like kangaroos bouncing, you know, a horse race is running. Uh, it's 
elastic rebound. The fact is you have this big ligament and, you know, it's split. There's a left and a right half. So the, you know, the diplodocus moves its neck to the left, right? And then it lets it go. And it basically has this free energy, you know, the stored energy in the right pulls it to the right and then it keeps going. So we suggest that this split spines and this split ligament help them to be able to feed for long periods of time with this horizontal neck posture and feeding side to side. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you didn't have this split ligament system and the split spine system and you were just relying on your muscles. That's a lot of caloric energy just to move your head side to side. Sure. And so that wouldn't be very efficient. But again, analogous to, you know, a kangaroo bouncing. They're able to do that because of this stored elastic energy. We proposed it was a similar way. Mm-hmm. But it's really cool to see how this develops through growth because this suggests that the forces acting upon a young diplodocus are different than that acting upon an older diplodocus. Hmm. And there's evidence coupled with some new work we're hopefully going to have published here shortly that suggests that a young diplodocus was not only feeding differently, so it might not have been feeding side to side, it might have been feeding on different plants even than its own mature species. Interesting. Yeah, I think I've I've heard similar things about other dinosaurs, and they kind of use that as an explanation of why there were less diverse animals going on because like the young might have filled some of the niches that the adults didn't so a single animal could kind of fill more of the ecosystem certainly and you're also you're not competing you know during your life stage you're eating different food types you're also not competing with members of your own species Mm -hmm. or at least your growth stages of your own species right yeah is there so the obvious question (laughs) i think that most paleontologists would uh, put out there, maybe as just like a devil's advocate, is how sure are you that they're not just different species when you have such a huge change, like the type of, you know, the number of spines in the vertebrae? Uh, that's a good question. So, of course, that gets back to what we'd call a lumper or a splitter. <laughs> um, so, here's the argument I would propose and what we tried to propose. Now, you know, sauropods, and again, Morrison sauropods are really common, but it's actually, it was really hard to find all of the same bones that we could compare in all of the same animals. That mm-hmm. was incredibly hard. And once you start winnowing down, like, what specific bone you're looking at, like, oh, I want to look at neck vertebra eight, right? <laughs> that gets really hard, because then you got to find every one of them that's a neck vertebra eight from all these size ranges. So there's a lot of size ranges you miss. So... What we did in this analysis was, you know, it was really tempting at times. Like, let's just say you saw a, a femur, so the big thigh bone, and it was a meter long. So, you know, that's like well over three feet, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's small by sauropod standards. And, and then you have a, a femur that was two meters long, right? So, you know, twice the length. You'd want to just initially say, oh, the small one is from a young animal, and the big one is from a big animal, right? That's our basic, you know, human assumption is just to correlate size to age. But, you know, Shaq and Mini-Me are human examples that just disprove that, right? (laughs) You know, Shaquille isn't the oldest human being on the planet. I guess that would be Yao Ming as well. Um, (laughs) So we know that there's a loose correlation to size and age, but it's not a rule. So what we did in this analysis is we just 
looked at all the bones, right? And mm-hmm. that was the great thing about doing the histology. So people have tried to argue, like if you look at mammals, for instance, like the ends of the limb bones, we know in mammals, those fuse, the ends of the limb bones fuse as the animal gets older. Mm-hmm. So if you have unfused ends of the limb bones, you know you have a young mammal, right? So people have tried to correlate similar things to dinosaurs. But the big problem is we can't watch that dinosaur grow up. We don't know. And of course, as Jack Corner would famously say, um, you know, we have a very mammal-centric viewpoint of dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> right. Our mammals, therefore, when we're studying something, we try to give it mammal-like tendencies or associations. You know, we can look at birds, but birds do a lot of really weird things. And so people have tried to argue with dinosaurs, oh, size correlates to age, or oh, if this thing fuses, it must be an adult, and if that thing's not fused, it's young. But the fact of the matter is the demonstrably proven way to determine a dinosaur's maturity, at least, is to look at it under the microscope. So make a histologic slide. Mm -hmm. Um, We tried to histologically sample as many elements as we could. And that's really debated. So, you know, I don't know, you know, in the past, if y'all have covered histology or, you know, even the general audience listening, you know, how background everyone has with histology. But, you know, if you cut certain bones from certain animals, you know, some mammal bones, you know, limb bones like a femur, and you cut it in half, just like a tree cut down, you know, if you look at the tree stump, you'll see these lines. And these lines correlate to yearly growth marks. Mm-hmm. And we on this in modern animals, we can see this. And we know that these lines correlate to some kind of yearly signal. And so we presume that, you know, we see similar lines in the dinosaur bone. These are growth lines. There's even debate within that, you know, but we can look at that. Mm-hmm. There's also wonderful, just like the top sauropod histology work comes out of Germany from the lab of Dr. Martin Sonder, showing that, you know, not only can we determine the age, but if you look at the bone tissue, so doesn't matter what kind of animal it is. Young animals have a bone tissue that looks very different from older animals. Mm. And so um, Nicole Klein and Martin Saunders came up with this great way of basically mapping the maturity of sauropod bone tissue from least mature to fully mature. So even though that way they couldn't tell, oh, this individual was blank years old when it died, they could look at a couple specimens and pick which ones were either more or less mature. So what we did with the sauropods we analyzed is, you know, we'd see this bone. We wouldn't want to have a preconceived notion about whether or not it was a young animal or an old animal. Mm -hmm. And then if we could, we histologically sampled it. And from doing all of that, we were able to then look at the shape and the microanatomy on the inside of the bone and try to determine if, yes, it was a small bone because it actually did come from a young animal. So what we ended up doing when we sort of sampled this gamut of different features, histologically and morphologically, because in the past, a lot of times people have done just histologic analyses or morphologic analyses. Mm -hmm. And the, the debate has ebbed and flowed, is one superior than the other. But we did this combined approach, and what we wanted to see was groupings. Now, we all grew up, you know, we know that growth is developmental. You know, there aren't these strict demarcations. You know, you don't go, it's not strictly A to B to C to D. 
so what we were able to do when everything was said and done is we could see these sort of broad categorizations that all of the making this up, you know, all of the 10 year, you know, five to 10 year old diplodocus, their femora, so, you know, their limb bones were in this particular size range. Their bone tissue in their femur was this kind of tissue. Their spines in their neck vertebra looked like this. You know, the opening in the head was this size. Then when we move up to like 15-year-old Diplodocus, then we saw these other groupings. And if we looked at even older Diplodocus, we saw these other groupings. So we were able to sort of make these age demarcations. And we actually called it the system because we were looking at histology and morphology. We called it the histologic morphologic ontogeny scale. And I know that's a big mouthful, but <laughs> that's because the histologic ontogeny scale has been used for sauropods and a morphologic ontogeny scale. And so that's what we really want to try to emphasize with the system is it's the cooperation. So the fact that we were trying to argue, if you really want to say the most about the intimate details of the life histories of these animals, you have to have both methods. And it's not complete or finished by any means. I mean, there's so much more we need to do to be able to understand this and fill this out. But it's at least a preliminary look at how these animals, how these animals as a whole were growing up. And the cool thing is, not only can we potentially recognize new things we need to look at, but then potentially we could also take like an isolated bone. Like let's just say you find a random diplodocus femur, mm-hmm. right? And then look at its shape or internal structure and then compare it to the system And then maybe you might be able to say more about that, the life of that individual animal than you thought you might have been able to before. Yeah, that sounds really useful. Well, we hope it's useful. (laughs) 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 Yeah, that's all really great. And yeah, I hadn't really thought about before how little we knew about growth rates of these types of animals. (laughs) Well, growth rates about dinosaurs is just, that's a whole nother topic, but you know, yeah. You know, yes, it's a lot of hard work involved into it, but it's something, you know, you might initially think might be really simple to answer. Mm-hmm. But when in reality, it just the multiple levels of complication, you know, really make it, uh, in many cases with these dinosaurs, you know, answers that, you know, or questions we yet have answers for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you get lucky and have any like bone beds with multiple ages from the same thing, or did you have to do them all individually all over the place? A little bit of both. So again, luckily, because the Morrison formation has been sampled for so long, there was a lot of material out there. Mm -hmm. So I could like basic measurements, things like that I could do. Now, admittedly, when it comes time to going to a museum and saying, hey, I'd like to chop your dinosaur, I'm (laughs) a wee bit hesitant than others. But that has been changing. You know, some people want to call histology destructive sampling because you're destroying a bit of it. Mm-hmm. We conversely call it enhanced sampling. And of course, <laughs> our argument would be if you can learn more about that individual animal by looking at the inside of its bones than you could just looking at the outside, isn't that enhancing our knowledge about that one? That's a good um, spin, yeah. <laughs> many the world are becoming way more proactive on histology. 
so there was actually a lot of material already sampled I could use and a lot of museums let me cut up really important specimens so like the Carnegie Museum of Natural History mm-hmm. let me sample the paratype of Diplodocus carnegia so that's the second one ever found oh um, nice really important specimen the New Mexico Museum of Natural History let me sample quote unquote seismosaurus uh, now we know it's the Diplodocus valorum um so a lot of museums let me do it it is a bit easier again I was at the Museum of the Rockies you know with Jack Horner so I mean we could just cut up anything that was ours mm-hmm. and actually collect sauropods um everyone thinks that museum of the rockies has you know oh they just have t-rex and triceratops but to toot our horn um we actually have one of the greatest uh growth series of sauropods that i mean i'm sure this is biased at least me saying it but uh <laughs> that i've seen at any collection in the world so we have a quarry that we were collecting from that was just outside of bozeman where we were getting largely complete nearly fully complete skeletons of immature Diplodocus specimens. Oh, wow. Nice. So that was really nice because again, like when I was saying earlier, like, you know, oh, I want to look at neck vertebra eight from a quote unquote subadult, right? Mm -hmm. That hard trying to find that because if you just have this one bone, you know, well, is it seven? Is it nine? But you know, when you have this, these complete animals, oh yeah, I know which one is that. Um, (laughs) It also really helps with these animals because when you have a bone bed, all these bones jumbled up and, you know, they're all similar size, similar age range. How do you know that two bones go to one particular animal, right? Mm -hmm. That got really hard. And admittedly, admittedly, there were many parts of of our study where that's the best that we could do. And we had to say that. But there were some remarkable specimens like these ones we had it in museum of the Rockies and other museum collections where we knew that we had, you know, either parts or large associations of skeletons of a single individual. And that was great because, you know, then we could actually say that we knew that these particular bones came from this particular animal. Yeah. That helps a lot. Definitely. So Where's the best place for people if they want to learn more about you and what you're working on? Where can they go? Hopefully the Museum of the Rockies, they've talked about plans of redoing all of these sauropods and having them mounted. Um, So that'll be cool. And we'll definitely have that research, uh, hopefully, in a future display. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if people are just, you know, Googling and want to find things out, um, you know, all of my papers are on Google Scholar. You know, a few of them are open access. So anyone around the world, even without an academic affiliation can, you know, read them. Um, currently for my PhD studies, I'm a, I'm a doctoral student with David Evans at the Royal Ontario Museum. Mm-hmm. So the Evans lab has a great website. So there's information on not just the research the lab's doing, but all of the participants and the projects they're doing. Um, so good resources like that, I'd recommend. Wonderful. You're also pretty active on Twitter, right? Uh, trying to be. <laughs> <laughs> There are a lot more uh, social butterflies than me. But uh, it, I've really been finding, of course, I'm sure everyone say with social media, but it's really great the people you can connect with. You know, as simple as a, you know, a tweet is how many people you can connect with and meet because of that. Definitely. <laughs> well, thanks so much for taking the time with talking to us today. I, I think I've told you several times, sauropods are my favorite. So this has been a real treat. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. And anytime y'all want to talk sauropods, I'm game. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Thanks again, Carrie, 
I really love talking about sauropods. Yes, you do. (laughs) (laughs) I like sauropods too, just not as much as you do. (laughs) (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone. There are a lot of dinosaur hotspots in the world, and high on our list of places to visit is Brazil because there are so many cool dinosaur sites in that country. Yes, it's home to some of the earliest dinosaurs like Saturnalia, a small long-necked dinosaur that weighed just a little more than a house cat. And then there's Austroposeidon, the largest known dinosaur from Brazil. It's about 82 feet or 25 meters long. And the carnivorous Thanos. Yes, that Thanos named for the Marvel Comics supervillain. Plus, some really amazing sites like the one recently described where people from thousands of years ago made rock carvings to go alongside dinosaur tracks. Yeah, petroglyphs and footprints in one place. Mm-hmm. We'll definitely want to learn Portuguese before we visit Brazil. One thing we've learned from our travels is you have a lot more fun adventures when you know the local language. Yeah, and places like petroglyphs aren't always near big cities, so it's very useful to have some local language knowledge. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in handy. It's designed and refined by language learning experts, and the lessons are immersive. There's also an audio companion, which is great when you're commuting, taking long walks, or even doing chores around the house. Perfect for when you're waiting for the next Dino Dino episode to drop. So, sauge, or cheers. Join now at rosettastone.com slash dino for a special limited time offer just for our listeners, and you'll get over 50% off for a lifetime membership. It's worth $399, but you can get it for just $179, and you'll get access to all 25 language courses. Again, that's rosettastone.com slash dino. This episode is brought to you by Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them on a dig this summer and help advance our scientific understanding of the ancient world. This is a 16-day immersive paleontology experience in northwest Colorado. The fossilized bones that are being excavated are public, and they'll be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. And the bone bed is really cool. It's atypical for the Morrison Formation. And the current thinking is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus acting as a log jam, and then other carcasses are piling up behind it. So you imagine a river flowing until a big old Brachiosaurus blocks the whole thing and a bunch of littler dinosaurs are piling up. Yeah. Oh, man. There have been two digs scheduled. There's May 27th to June 11th and July 1st to July 16th. Also, in conjunction with the dig, there are two immersive lab techniques programs available. College credit is available for both programs for those interested, and you can go to cncc.edu slash dinodig to get all the details and register online. Again, that's cncc.edu for Colorado Northwestern Community College slash D-I-N-O-D-I-G. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Sauropod Giraffe Titan, which was a request from Michelle and Remy via Facebook. So thanks. The name Giraffe Titan means giant giraffe. And it was a sauropod that lived in the Jurassic in what is now Tanzania in Africa. The type species is Giraffe Titan bronchii. And originally it was thought to be a Brachiosaurus. It was first named and described in 1914 by Werner Jenensch but as Brachiosaurus bronchii. And this was based on specimens found in the Tendiguru Formation in 1909 and 1912 in Tanzania, which was then German East Africa. Partial skeletons were found, including three skulls, limb bones, vertebrae, and teeth. And then in 1903, 
Elmer Riggs named and described Brachiosaurus, and we cover that in episode 39 if you want to learn more. Brachiosaurus is one of the most well-known dinosaurs, but interestingly, its image is based mainly on Giraffatitan bronchii and not Brachiosaurus altithorax. However, Brachiosaurus and Giraffatitan are considered to be sister taxa. In 1988, Gregory S. Paul said that Brachiosaurus bronchii had significant differences compared to Brachiosaurus altithorax, the one that was found in North America. He thought that the proportions of its trunk vertebrae were different and that it had a more gracile build, so he created the subgenus Brachiosaurus bronchii. In 1991, George Olszewski said there were enough differences for it to be its own genus, and so then it became Giraffatitan bronchii. In 1998, a description of a North American Brachiosaurus skull was published. The skull was found almost 100 years earlier, and it was actually the skull Marsh used in early reconstructions of Brontosaurus, Mm. and it was identified as Brachiosaurus. And this skull looks similar to Camarasaurus in some ways, with similar front teeth and a longer, less hollowed-out skull compared to the short-snouted, high-crested Giraffatitan skull. Not all scientists accepted Giraffatitan as a separate genus at first, but then Michael Taylor published a detailed comparison of the two in 2009, and he showed differences between the two in every fossil bone that he could compare. So he showed differences in size, shape, and proportion. Giraffatitan, as you can imagine, looked a little bit like a giraffe. It had long forelimbs and a long neck. And for a long time, it was the largest known dinosaur, but now other titanosaurs have been found that are bigger, like Argentinosaurus and Patagotitan, for example. Giraffa Titan was about 71.5 to 73.8 feet, or 21.8 to 22.5 meters long, and 39 feet or 12 meters tall, based on a subadult found. So it may have been longer, maybe even up to 85 feet or 26 meters, based on a fibula of another specimen found. The fibula that was found is 13% larger than the subadults. Giraffa Titan is estimated to weigh 23 to 39 tons, though it could have been larger, and estimates are based on the subadult. The skull had a high crest. For a long time, scientists thought that Giraffatitan's nostrils were on the top of its head. Early theories about sauropods, as we've discussed, were that they used their nostrils like a snorkel and spent a lot of time underwater. Hmm. Now scientists think that Giraffatitan, though, was a land animal. Like giraffes. (laughs) (laughs) Giraffatitan had nostrils near its snout, not at the top of its head, even though the nasal openings were high above the eyes. And this is according to Lawrence Wittmer's 2001 study. Yeah, meaning that... The skull nasal openings were near the top of his head, but then the soft tissue redirected it towards the front of the face where you'd normally expect to see nasal openings. Yep. So if the nostrils were near the snout, it's possible then that Giraffatitan used the crest at the top of its head as a resonating chamber, possibly for communicating among its own species or attracting a mate or displaying dominance. Giraffatitan had spatulate teeth, looked like chisels. And there's been a hypothesis that Giraffatitan had a trunk, but Giraffatitan had wear and tear on its teeth that would have been from biting and tearing off plant matter and not from grinding, which would have been the case if it had had a trunk and used that to rip off branches and leaves and then ground up its food. I wonder why someone thought it would have a trunk. That would really make it look crazy. I couldn't find much information. <laughs> yeah, and it would just add even more pressure on that super long neck. <laughs> like if you put a giraffe and an elephant together. Yeah. <laughs> Weird. Yeah. Giraffe Titan was probably a high browser, but could get to food at the tops of trees. And it had claws on the first toe of its front feet and first three toes of its hind feet. It had a small brain with a low encephalization quotient, which estimates possible intelligence of either 0.6 or 0.79. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> Not great, but 
Who knows? Some people used to think Giraffe Titan had a second brain because of this sacral enlargement above the hip, but that was probably glycogen bodies, which stored energy. You can see Giraffe Titan bronchii at the Museum for Naturkunde in Berlin. It's one of the largest and tallest mounted skeletons in the world. The Giraffe Titan in Berlin is actually made of five individuals. It's a composite, and it's recently been updated based on what we know about it. That's kind of like the Patago Titan is based on several individuals, too. Mm-hmm. If you can't make it to Berlin, you can also see Giraffe Titan come to life on Google Cardboard or YouTube 360 in Giraffe Titan Back to Life in Virtual Reality. And in that, the skeleton comes to life and turns into a 3D dinosaur and walks around. It's pretty cool. Nice. I love some good VR. Mm-hmm. And our fun fact of the day comes from our time working in the two medicine formation for all of one evening, for all of one <laughs> afternoon. I was going to say, what do you mean our time working? <laughs> we were there for a day. We learned that gray-blue sediment can indicate that it was an anaerobic environment, and that means that it was likely a good environment for fossils to come from. So if you see gray-blue sediment, it might be a good place to look for fossils. And the reason that an anaerobic environment is important is because it doesn't support life like bacteria or other organisms that need oxygen, and those organisms can gobble up dinosaurs or other organisms that get buried. All right. Fun fact. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe so that you get updates to all the newest episodes. If you'd like to join our growing community on Patreon, check out our page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again. And until next time. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader.